Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today I'm delighted to have Rinku Banger, who is the founder of Excellion, as my guest. Rinku, would you mind giving a quick introduction to your background and who you are and how you got here? Yeah, sure. So I've come from, a, I'd say, like to say, an illustrious career. So um, I've started right from the start from the, the boardroom atmosphere as a, as a BDR, worked my way up to, to being a founder of now a, a company called Excellion. Um, and in all, the, all in between, I've released a single, which has got to number seven in the iTunes charts. I've worked in a cardiology department. I have built a sales team up from scratch from a, a, as a co-founder of a company called Convergence. And now at Excellion, I am trying to establish an organization which is truly benefiting my clients um, as and in the advisory format. So an IT advisory firm which um, navigates the technology market, and we are powering that by a team of consultants and account directors. So let's get started with the nitty-gritty. Tell me what it takes to be top-performing salesperson in the tech space nowadays. I think having a, a... so no technology at the moment is off the cards. I think you need to have, you truly do need to have an industry-wide overview. You need to be connecting with all levels of management as well. So it's not just about connecting with the C-level staff. It's all about connecting with the support staff as well and understanding what their pains are right through down to, right through to the top. And I guess in terms of the the vendor side of things, I, I think, again, it's just understanding what they where they see they are best fit and truly best fit so uh, vendors will try and get into every single opportunity and it's about you navigating them to understand exactly where they fit rather than where they want to fit yeah (laughs) that's probably one of the key things okay so you've sort of opened up uh, several cans of worms there for me let's start with a friendlier question to begin with what are the habits that made you successful what did you do every day every week every month every quarter without fail, without having to have someone's foot on your neck to do it, because it was the right thing to do and you knew it would make you successful? So the first thing I did and the most important thing I did was actually pick up the phone, which is a rarity now. What, you actually prospected? Absolutely. And by phone? And by phone. There's no way of email. I saw you. (laughs) It's absolutely great. I think it's one of those things that also... It's a skill which will never, never go wasted. And as much as people say the phone is dead, far from it. We're still picking up till now to this day around twi- between 30 and 40 opportunities a month through the phone, even during COVID when everyone's in the office. Fabulous. So, Are you listening? Pay attention. Pick up the bloody phone. Make calls. Speak to human beings. People love being spoken to. It's at the start. You, you just got to adapt to mold to, to them. Over the years, I think cold calling has always been that because I've, I've seen a lot of people who have who've great, got these great big clients and can sit on them and sit on them for years. And then one day their contact leaves and you're left in a deep, dark hole of, of, of nothing left. So it's always been a kind of a keen, keen to keep that client pool topped up, keep on growing. So talk to me about that. What were you intentionally doing in terms of filling the funnel? Where were you focused on the funnel? Was it the top, the middle? I'd say I was focused on the middle. So the top of the funnel was the was the fun part, which was which I would say was the cold call and the prospecting and actually doing the outreach. 
because that was a, that was the part that gives you the buzz, right? <laughs> nothing better than booking a meeting and changing someone's mind. Just great. There, part. there are people out there who are cringing at the moment, screaming at their computers, saying no. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, but it's. I've worked with sales teams who use every excuse under the sun about cold calling. They're on. Um, it's not a good time to call because it's Christmas time. It's not a good time to call because it's uh, summer. It's not a good time to call because they're um, cause they're going through changes. It's and Monday. You- it's Easter. Mars isn't in alignment with Uranus, um, and their dog has an ingrowing toenail. Heard them all. Okay. Exactly. And the top of it was, in reality, all of them were equally as important. But the top, the top was the cold calling piece, which I enjoyed the most. The middle was probably the was actually the fun part of the navigate well working with that client navigating building up that relationship and that was probably where I focused most on um was building up building up that relationship because again this is probably this some people sales people may not agree is they I may not have won that deal because it's some a lot of the time it'd be my first opportunity with them and closing the first opportunity again is uh, with a client is was one of those difficult difficult things to do so I'd always kind of focus on building those relationships first then moving on to, and then then really focusing on trying to close that deal with them. And if I had that relationship part sorted, then I would at least know if this deal doesn't come through, I can always focus on that second one. There's an atrocious statistic. Sorry, let me rephrase that. There's a statistic floating around that 60% of the buying decision has already been made before a prospect ever invites in a salesperson. Your views on that? I agree. Quite simply, I agree. I think if they're already in the market to buy to to do something, they've already done their market research and they're just using the the you'd be used as the kind of the benchmark. The thing is, if you if you really are really a, a compelling product that can change them drastically, mm-hmm. then I would see that's where I see best fit. But other than that, it's uh, I think a lot of the time they do have a lot of their decisions made, and you are the ben- you are the part of the benchmarking process. So. Okay, because the evidence suggests that that might be wrong. Okay. Over 60% of pursuits end in no decision. So it can't be 60% of the way through it, because if they were, they'd be making a decision to buy something at the end. And what's really interesting is that it's the ones uh, of the 40%, 74% of purchase decisions were, went to the vendor who challenged their preconceptions and their current position. The other 26, uh, 26% went into a bun fight. And there, you're lucky to have a one in four chance. So you've got 26% of 10%, which is not good. That's 2.6. So the challenge here, I think, and I, I don't know, if, you know you, you've obviously got uh, a lot of experience, so I'm just curious. In terms of your approach, how often were you pitching products versus trying to identify and sell to a problem? I've more recently made that switch from, from becoming, a, I guess, from the reseller world, moving into the advisory world. I think that's there's a big difference there. So in the reseller world, it is about how quick can you turn over a deal and how much can you make on it in the shortest mass and as quick as, quick as possible. Now, in the advisory world, it's, it's a little different. What's well, a lot different. And we are going out there. We're 
the actual cold calls are completely different as well. The cold call is not we've got this product and we're going to do this for you. It's it is very much we want to. This is a trend we're seeing. Is this something that you're following? Is this something that you're looking to do? Um, have you and then understand and then trying to extract as much pain points as possible from them before we try and navigate them down the world of SaaS vendors. So what's the difference in the quality of the conversations now that you've made that shift? The quality's improved massively. I've got a lot more credibility because from the within the past I've made a lot of mistakes and from being from that world, I've done the as you mentioned before, I've done the drop my pants to get a deal in at the end of the month. I have uh, burned clients just to try and get a deal in and know that they probably won't deal with me for six, seven months anyway. So just get make as much money as I can now. Whereas the world now is is all about credit, building credibility because you ideally you want to this you've got to, you this person's got to trust you. So they, that trusted advisor approach they've got to trust you throughout this whole buying process. So your UID will be the sole navigator amongst six to seven vendors to help them close that deal. So if you had a golden ticket and you could go back to the beginning of your career, what would you, you whisper in Rinku's ear? So I've been asked this before and I would struggle to, to give you an answer. Yeah, I'd struggle to give you an answer. I've done a lot of a lot of things in the past which have been detrimental to that period of time, but every single one of them I've I've, I've learned from. So I've listened to bad advice, and because that person was a great salesman, doesn't mean they can give good good, good advice. It just means they they can sell themselves, which unfortunately means they're selling to me. <laughs> so I guess probably it's not the most glamorous golden ticket, but if you was to say to me and, and uh, say to me yeah what would be that I think it would actually probably be network more which is a real basic one but I believe at 23 if I was networking more I think and in different industries I think I would uh, be way ahead of where I am just because the knowledge of the knowledge of various industries I would have the network I would have amongst amongst my peers and um, now that influencer status and that and having that large network is invaluable Interesting. It's, it certainly does pay off. I mean, I've worked across 500 different segments of the market. And what having a general experience does, particularly in areas where you need to be creative in a specialist field, is it allows you to draw on all of those different experiences and apply the lessons from different areas. Whereas if someone is just a specialist, within a particular field they don't have those points of reference that's incredibly valuable and the other thing about having a large network is that there are always people that you can ask I think the most valuable question I've learned to ask is who would know the answer and that's incredibly potent because now I can go to my network and I can chat to people in different walks of life from different levels different levels of experience different cultural backgrounds and I can sit, have a much more three-dimensional view before I decide what I'm going to do and that makes me better informed and that's a huge advantage so those are great bits of advice I mean um tell me this and I know this is a cruel question to have on the recording but why aren't you a better salesman I think it's probably to do with me being for quite some time I think maybe 
I think maybe being a bit naive to the industry and maybe being a bit blindsided by working in such a, a tight industry where it's very incestuous. So you start to get to know people who start to move around. So you get to know the big hitters, you get to know people who are going to be scamming the next company and working there for six months just to get a paycheck. And you get to know this and you suddenly, once you stay in that for so long and stay into that real close-knit community, you don't expand your knowledge and you don't expand your network beyond that. And I think that's where it's where I it's definitely where one of the reasons I I've, uh, I've I reckon I'm not I've not didn't accelerate to where I wanted to be. Ideally, the position I am now, I wish I was in this the position. I wish I was in probably about two and a half three years ago. Wow, um, how old are you now? Thirty one. Right. Okay. So yeah, that, that's quite a big proportion of your career. Yeah, in terms of the sales and as my career, I'd say um, in terms of figures. So I've been at a peak for the last four years, so increasing over the last four years. But yeah, when I first hit that peak, I think that's where that's where I reckon I would have would have enjoyed to be back at. And um, at that at that point, going to that advisory model, which I am in now. When did you start looking for mentors? Very recently. So I would say in the summer of last year is when I actually started looking out, and it wasn't until. I'd say November, December, I sifted through what was good and what was bad. There's a lot of mentors out there who are doing a lot of their work for, oh, I guess, the work for the gram. Um, so you, you see it, you uh, you hear it, and it's pointless information, but someone can quote it and it sounds great. But it actually, what does it actually deliver for you? What does it actually change for you? Uh, not very much. That may be because working in the industry for so long I've I picked up a few things or yeah then they're just not very good so what do you look for in a good mentor so this is going to be personal to me but I look for someone who has got a bit of raw rawness to them someone who's not scared to tell me how it is tell me where I'm, I'm making those mistakes so we're doing the cold call every doing cold calling um, almost every day I know that but I'm going to get told you're going to get rejected um, 80% of the time. So I'm used to that. And I prefer people to also treat me like that and continue and continue like that to give me that type of treatment and say, this isn't what this isn't working. You should be doing this. You should be forcing yourself to do this. And I think people who truly are experienced in actually still doing this. So I find it difficult for people to who are influencers and haven't actually got real experience in the background of, of the cold calling piece, of the actual the graft piece of it. I did uh, that's someone who who knows that knows that uh, knows that well inside out. Have you come across Scott Lease? Yes, I have actually. Yes. Are you in his group? No, I've been following Scott for. A... Strongly recommend that you follow him. Then okay. um, he's right up your alley. Six-time startup founder, taken six businesses to two hundred million. Incredible culture when he runs sales teams there are 60 hours of voluntary training a month available to people and it's not just sales it's about how to manage your finance how to uh, invest because there's no point making all this money if you're just flushing it down the, uh, the swanny at the weekend and uh, one of the things that one of the metrics he measures is how much training you've put yourself through each month fabulous mindset and fabulous culture and also, you know, having this incredible balance and in his book, Addicted to the Process, is definitely worth a read. So tell me this, what kind of 
pressure were you put under by your management to perform acts of idiocy, which in the short term would maybe help the uh, the team or the company hit their quota, but then the unintended consequences weren't good. Absolutely. So it's probably something that I'd probably have to keep off this call because it's something that you just <laughs> we wouldn't ever be able to go back to. You don't have to name. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save it for the next session. <laughs> the end of the month chase, which was the which I found sometimes a bit pointless. So that end of month close, do whatever you can to get that to get that in because if you don't hit that target, you lose everything that you've built up over the last three months. That was one. So you're coming up to those last few days and suddenly you're dropping the price. The deal doesn't come in and the next month they're saying, well, you did this price for me last month. Why can't you do it for me this month? It's quite a difficult one to get around. So once you try and stop put up the price again, it becomes different. You also lose a lot of credibility, which I think is invaluable when you're trying to be their account manager or account director. So we've had that. We've had, this is where I'm going to probably get, I've had, I've had to do so much. I'm almost stuck to say, this, is some, this caused some real damage. We've done... Okay, well, let me rephrase the question slightly to get you off the hook. What are the lessons that you've learned by observing poor management practice that you will never implement in your own business? I think lack of accountability is one of the biggest in a bad sales team and in a bad management team. That lack of accountability from the top through to, um, will just filter through down to the bottom. And it works both ways. It works from a from a BDR all the way up and from management all the way down. So I see it as if management is getting this if management and get getting it wrong on the top, you're putting the putting the pressure on. As that just goes downwards, it just gets worse and worse and worse. So you put the pressure onto the rep, the rep will two scenarios will either undersell what they're trying to do, make less money, and potentially taint their relationship with, with that partner and with that uh, client so future business may be also be at jeopardy so that's three things that have already happened from the prep from having those bad management pieces from the ground upwards you have the issues of a bdr uh, being under pressure and then falsifying their forecast everyone's done it i worked in a boiler room when i was uh, i guess that boiler room actually was my first job so i remember having to do it because i was working alongside i was one of these um i came in as a I was called a grad, but um, I think I was quite a bit older than a grad uh, at the point. But I was called the grad. I went in. Um, there was a lot of high flyers in there, and I was this one guy that was doing three figures at, at the start, <laughs> moving up to trying to get up to the uh, to the five figures they to, to the five figures they were doing. And um, it was again, it was just a high pressure environment. And yeah, you, you falsify your figures, and that's again, it, it that's disrupts the structure at the top. So BDRs not, can't do their job effectively because they feel like they're under pressure and they're crumbling. Their forecast is, is incorrect. Then the you can't forecast what you want to do for your company correctly. And then that just filters again right through the top. So management is just a fine balance of getting it all completely right and supporting your staff correctly. It, I mean, you, you're pointing to some so such common problems because ambiguity and lack of clarity at the top leads to politics and confusion at the bottom. And that filters down. So by the time it gets to the coalface where you were, then people are feeling enormous pressure. And the need to make it through the month by having a forecast that looks fat enough to keep your job 
creates immense pressure and stress. So you see a huge amount of burnout. Did you see a lot of sales reps burn out? Absolutely. I've seen, yeah, seen a lot. So one of the, probably the best sales reps I'd seen, he had the, the right attitude on the phone, come in early, pick up the phone, do everything he could. But the pressure, pressure hit him massively. So he wasn't closing those deals. He wasn't um, doing enough, but he built up some very good pipe. He built up some very good opportunities. He just crumbled under the, underneath that pressure and he ultimately lost his job. But those accounts became some of the biggest accounts of the company. That's very common. Now, the other problem is that if you're creating this false pressure and encouraging reps to basically create works of fiction in their pipeline, then that creates a problem going up because you hear lots of excuses around deal slippage and why people aren't buying. And you never really get to the root cause of why people aren't buying because uh, most of the reps think it's about price because they're being put under pressure at the end of every uh, reporting period to drop the price in the mistaken belief that people buy on price. Occasionally they do, and for commodities they might. But what that then creates is an upward problem because now you can't depend on the forecast, which means that you're making decisions on forecasts that could be anywhere from 10 to 30 to 80% out either way. And that doesn't give you any visibility. And One of the other problems I see is a lack of understanding where opportunities are at each stage in the pipeline. So suspect, prospect, qualified prospect, closable prospect, and not having a clear difference between the two. So one of the things I've seen happen a lot, and maybe this uh, will be borne out in your experience, is the volume of opportunities that are at 50-50. There is no such thing as a 50-50 forecast. That's a weasel forecast, and it's no better than the toss of a coin. That's no way to run a sales operation. So did you ever experience over-assignment of quota? You know, the company has to do 20 million, and when you add up all the quotas of all the salespeople, it comes to 30 or 35 million. Yeah, it's just funny enough, everyone's everyone's going to apparently hit their target at the end of the month. (laughs) Yeah. For a very long time, at a lot of the companies I've been at and, and before, that was always the case, which is quite a bad thing. So I think it's maybe it's something specific to this industry. I've always seen that. It's just poor, poor forecasting, poor, poor. Um, and like I said, I, at one point, I, I was guilty of that, of just putting those figures in there just to have the pressure off my back for, for another few days. <laughs> I remember putting my forecast together and I was due to meet my CEO, Dan, in Exeter to see a company called Wix. And I put my forecast together and I, uh, I used different pens to, and then I dried them on the car heater whilst I was waiting for him <laughs> um, so that he could have a look at it and then talk, talk me through it. And then I shoved it into the back of the car again. Yeah, because it was just a myth. It was like my plan. Same thing. Okay, so tell me this. In the interview process, because I I know, particularly now, there are going to be a lot of salespeople looking for work. It's going to be, you know, my my prediction is that from September on, it's going to be a bloodbath because a lot of people will be losing their jobs. And the challenge here is that when you're going for a job, to make sure that you get to the truth of what the job actually entails. How often did you find that the job you were sold isn't the job that you bought? Um, This is a good one where it comes into, 
again been so I'd say quite more than often again when you're going into sales they will do anything to attract you so if you're in the driving seat in a sales opportunity they'll do everything and anything to approach you to get there so they'll tell you you're going to have the support they'll tell you you're going to have a team around you and in theory you actually get to that you get to that part of the journey and you realize this isn't what it was supposed to be this is not going to be as easy as as they make it out to be they're not the leader because the problem is every this is it where if a lot of the time well, you're interviewed by salespeople and salespeople are the best salespeople. So you're being sold to, you're being sold to a job and you're going to always keep thinking it's great. I think it's, it's, a, it's a difficult one. To, it's a difficult one to navigate. It's going to be a lot about gut decision. And actually if this company is going to be right for you personally, I think if, if there's no interest in there, then if there's no, if there's no interest, then, you won't look at it any further than than what it what it sees at face value. So, if you had your time again, what would you do differently at the interview stage to make better choices? As a start, I think I would have interviewed a few more. I've always been on. I've never been on the vendor side. So, firstly, you would have liked to see what the what it was like over at the other side. I think it would have been good to also see the interview processes at some enterprise organisations as well as the these small disruptor organizations i think having a having a wider view of how how it works would, would have been great at the start of so before i did stop excel and i i went for a few job interviews at um quite a well-known tech company and um it was a seven stage process and it was actually a very interesting and engaging seven stage process different levels of people different um, and different all different parts of the organization actually guiding you through this Enjoyed the process and got right through to the uh, well to to the top end, and I was way nowhere near qualified, so I was just selling myself all the way through that as well. That one interview gave me a real good insight into exactly how how best to do it um, and how how to approach it. You've obviously worked with vendors for much of your career. How often were you left wanting because the channel manager? was really just picking up the phone and saying, Rinku, what have you got for me this month? Nothing, great, I'll speak to you next month. Rather than them coming in, helping you to sell what they have to offer instead of just offering you product knowledge and really helping you to be successful. Can you think of any examples where that actually happened? 100%. <laughs> so the channel model is changing massively and they need to be keeping up. The old school road warrior is no longer... Is no longer the is no longer the go-to port of call. They need to be pitching that product to you every so often. They need to t- be telling you about the wins they've been having. They need to be telling you about potentially what other, how other companies are working as well and where they're seeing success, and not focusing on your internal customer database. What or, do you mean by that? So this is where I, I think I've experienced a lot of problems, and again, a lot of problems in the past. So when you're building out a company, you are continually prospecting and continually growing but a lot of the channel managers who i've worked with in the past will continually concentrate on those accounts that you actually have and um, so those accounts are already spending with you and trying to get to those to get those quick wins only and won't focus on actually developing your outreach campaign whether it's however they do it whether that's uh with collaboration between the two companies whether it's uh sales enablement or if it's marketing. So they don't focus on that. They focus on just getting quick wins in and and that's it. They don't focus on that, on that growth piece. 
the problem I saw, I've, I've seen very recently, an example on a call and several times on this call, I've said that we're not giving you access to our, well, our current client base. We are massively accelerating in our prospecting and our, um, and our actual booking of opportunities. So and when, like I said, we're booking around, booking around 30 to 40 um, now a month. And he was still so focused on that, even though that prospecting piece would double the size of his pipeline, would double doubled in size and above the, the actual customer base. But he was so focused on getting those quick wins that he just didn't want to open his, open his mind so up. Did you feel that he was more interested in his interests than your interests? 100%. Okay. So what advice would you give to channel managers? It's the cheesy one, and it's one that every salesperson has to hear, but actually listen to the customer, which is us. So listen to the customer, actually understand what it is their goals are. Don't focus on the immediate three-month goal of getting a bit of quick deal in. Focus on do a, definitely do a three, six, nine, and potentially a uh, 24-month plan with the, with the partners and make sure that's – so this is, again, this is similar to what I do now. So make sure it has dates in, make sure it has milestones in, make sure it has – if we're doing marketing campaigns, what dates are they going to be going out? How are we going to be actioning these? How can we follow these up? How can we get the matrix on this? I think making a, an actual firm, firm plan is imperative to actually making a successful campaign. And I've worked with some really good um, channel managers and directors over the last last two years, actually. Name a few. So um, one of the channel directors, Sean, at, Sean Blackmore at uh, 8x8. Great at what he does. Goes in there makes it feel like you're the only company that they work with, which is a great feeling, right? That's, that's what you want. You want someone to feel, make you feel like this, you're, you are their focus and will give you the support you need. So, and actually follow up on it, follow up on it. I'm sure you've had this a few times as even just a simple, don't worry, I'll get, I'll get back to you on this and you're chasing them up. Don't worry, I'll send you some, I'll send you some emails and send you some collateral and just get bombarded with loads of PowerPoints. It's pointless. Right. Okay. Well, I, I mean, I, I've worked with a lot of people over the years, and the distinguishing qualities that I see in great channel managers, first of all, they have a service mentality. They're there to help their partners be successful because they know that by making their partners successful, they'll be successful too. They fight up front so if there's a problem that's going to happen, they're experienced enough and savvy enough to know they need to raise it early so that they can have contingency plans in place that both sides understand, both sides agree to. They're fabulous planners. They think more like a general than a private on you know, going over the top. And they share information across their partners because they're exposed to 10, 20, 30, 50 partners and they can share the best practices across all of them. They focus on behavior. They don't focus on the number. They focus on the behavior that gets you there. They are focused exclusively on training and developing their partner's salespeople as if they were their own in order to help them be successful. And knowing full well that the partner may use that training to sell competitors' products and services, but they do it anyway because they know that by making the partner successful, the partner will still be around. They will remember, and those who don't, that's just a little bit of collateral damage along the way, but they recognize 
that it's their job to help their partners succeed and achieve their goals and their objectives. And they're selfless in their approach. And they are also take personal responsibility and they have mutual accountability in place. So they hold your feet to the fire and they expect you to hold them to the, uh, their feet to the fire as well. And they're relentless in their focus on pipeline because prospecting is an act of choice. If you have choice in your pipeline because your pipeline is full at the top and fat in the middle with quality prospects, they know that you have the contingency built in there so that you don't have to do fireside sales at the end of the month or the quarter. And the objective is to put money in the partner's pocket because if you do that, then they'll keep coming back. What tends to happen with the bad partners and bad channel managers as they go out and they recruit lots of them. I was speaking to a very large distributor last year, and they have over 10,000 partners. But when we did the analysis, 126 of them generated 50% of their revenue. And this is the real-life execution of Price's Law, which states that 50% of your production will come from the square root of the number of people in your organization. The square root of 10,000 is 100. And what the really good ones do is they focus on recruiting the right type of partners. They establish clear prenup, you know, who keeps the babies in the event of a divorce, how do we escalate, all that kind of stuff. And then they focus on recruiting more partners just like them. They don't compromise on recruitment and they do everything in their power to help their partners be successful. And it sounds like Sean Blackmore at 8x8 does that. Certainly from speaking to JD, his boss, that's the culture that they've instilled. And you see this in the best vendors who are channel focused. Now, part of the problem is that most vendors don't really like the channel that much and they don't understand it. They see it as the ginger-haired, bastard, ugly stepdaughter of direct sales. And they see it as competition or they see it as less valuable because they're having to give margin away. And the management of the vendors don't really understand it. What vendors need to understand is your future depends on your partners. Increasingly, certainly within the tech space, you are going to be marginalized more and more. In the uh, security stack, there are probably 12 to 20 vendors in an enterprise that are providing security products. If you're in the MarTech space, there could be a dozen. If you're in the sales enablement space, yeah, there could be half a dozen to 20, depending on the type of sophistication. And you need your partners because your partners are the people who have the relationship with those customers. And if you're not helping them, you're in deep, deep trouble. It may not hurt you today, but it will hurt you over time. And so get smart about understanding your partners and working genuinely as a partner, which means that you help each other get better. So they have to be able to hold you to account and give you their honest feedback and listen to what they have to say, like Rinku said. Your thoughts? Absolutely correct. So I think I've, I've seen it amongst a lot of those, all, well, from enterprise through to the SMB vendors as well i think it's it's something that needs to be spread across those organizations definitely some really good value points there so tell me this in terms of the training that 
you feel that you really needed, but it wasn't forthcoming and you had to learn through scar tissue. If you could go back and you just started your own business up, what are you looking to implement when you're bringing on new SDRs and career pathing them into direct sales and AE roles and management? So I myself am not a through and through sales leader yet. I want to be there and I believe I can get there. So I will look for the services of, I'll look for the training aspect for myself from the likes of yourself and a few contacts I have within the industry. So as a, as kind of that management piece. So what I have done is I've partnered with a organization to help me train my staff and to nurture and develop them. And so they, we put, they, they put together a program, which I'm supporting on a daily basis to grow the reps out. And we are going for the organic growth as well. So we are, we are, we're not getting these experienced salespeople who are 60 grand a year and say they're going to come in and bring every deal with them and, and close everything. And, and then sell of course. Yeah. This is what I said. Like salespeople are the best salespeople you can get. You, you unfortunately will get sold to, which I've experienced way, way too many times in the past. I always joke that, you know, what's the conversation between two adults where both sides are lying through their teeth? A job interview. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They're trying to sell the, the dream to you and you're trying to sell yourself to them. Since you're an organization to then help us grow out that sales team to, to, to nurture them over the course of 12 months. And so we are looking at the moment of, of the grassroots of it, of the actual prospecting and the cold calling and actually doing the outreach. So this is where the moment is the main focus. And then we're going to develop that over the course of the year to then give it, feeding them more and drip feeding them more and more information about the vendors, about the products to them, to then be able to then manage opportunities themselves. So it's a slow campaign. And I don't want to, again, in the past, we've done a, when I've um, worked at different organizations, the idea is to get the, to get that rep up and running within within two months, which is impossible. At the start of the campaign, I, I worked on um, for my reps. We um, took a whole month out just to purely provide training with no prospecting at all. So that was quite a difficult thing at the start because you, as a as a founder, you're also looking at the the, the commercial aspect of it and thinking, I'm sinking money every every uh, every day at the moment because they're not going out there and prospecting, but if you want to grow, grow it out properly and if you want to have a successful sales team, then you're going to have to make some sacrifices. So what's the onboarding process that you're putting your reps through? So the initial is the sales training. Um, and that sales training it would involve general sales training. So how to best prospect, what are the key things to be looking out for. This is in general sales. Um, so not technology specific at this, at this current moment. They will go through... They'll understand what um, what they need from a what they need in their conversations, what they need, what kind of the what they need to be hearing out for, what are the gaps in the market they they should be looking out for. At the start, is very much it's pure prospecting. We then move on to an introduction to the vendors, but each vendor only has a, a very minimal time with them, so we cook around twenty to thirty minutes at max, because otherwise your brain turns to mush when it's a when we're talking vendors, they want to say each one of them's greatest. Um, <laughs> which they will in certain markets, a lot of them, so a lot of them are very, very similar and have very, very small changes. So ideally, if you could introduce introduce them to one vendor and then introduce them to the next one, it would only be a five-minute call if they actually only had to speak about what's actually different. Okay. And 
When you're interviewing, what are you looking for in a raw startup SDR? So there's a few things we look for. And so one of them is they have an aspiration. And I, I appreciate this. Uh, some people may look at this a bit differently to how I do, but they have a some real basic stuff. So maybe they are living with their parents. Maybe they're young. Maybe we're looking for someone who wants who we can progress and actually develop over over the course of the next five years. We're looking for someone that that wants to achieve to buy their own flat, wants to that isn't interested as, as much in the uh, in the wage in the salary rather than and they're more interested in the the commission. We've got a very good incentive scheme over here to develop that rep. So um, there's four stages to it. There is targets based upon prospecting, the targets based upon closed deals, the targets based upon the monthly, the actual money they actually bring in. And as another incentive, which is about develop, developing them to look the part for the actual meeting when, when we're allowed to get back into the offices again. So having someone who's motivated by that and actually motivated by, by those incentives is, is definitely one of the key aspirations that we look for. I think just having someone who also believes in your product and then can actually then pitch those values back to you genuinely, which um, I think the genuine pitch back to you is a big, big thing. Because again, it's one of those things when you know your product inside out and someone pitches it back to you, you can tell when they're lying and when they're not. <laughs> tell me, what, what are you reading, watching, listening to that you really think other people should pay heed to in terms of great content to help people develop their selling and management capabilities? So in terms of reading, I may take a different approach of what a lot of people may do. So I will read based upon what's the need for that, that period of time. Um, so at the start of um, at the start of this process, I was reading, reading a book again, which was called Cold Calling for Chickens, a book yep. I got given to me about 10 years ago, I think. <laughs> Just at the start, because I just I, so now I can pick up a phone normally. I can pick up a phone, and as soon as that person puts the phone phone down on me, I'm I'm on to the next one. I don't it doesn't I don't see it as a as a problem anymore. And the rep I had had it had a problem, just couldn't get past it. And I thought, and I and I couldn't pinpoint what it was. So I wanted to read that again, then give it to him, talk him through it, just understand, and, and and it's a very basic book, and I think it's a it's a great as a as a base standard. At the start of your career, to to have a quick read of that, it's, it's one of those short books which um, gives you all the information you need and cuts the uh, cuts the crap. I, guess. I, I think you've touched on a really important point here, which is that if you've been around for a while, you've got some scar tissue, you're seasoned, you forget what it was like to be right at the beginning of your career, and it's important as a manager that you can feel what your reps feel, that you understand what they're going through, and they feel understood and that you hear what they're telling you so that you can help them in the way that they need to be helped i think one of the biggest mistakes that you see managers make is uh, they say oh look let me show you what i do and they think by telling or showing people that's sufficient one of the other things that i'm particularly encouraged by from what you've been saying is that training is an ongoing daily activity it's not something that's one and done Training is like washing. If you do it once and don't do it again, you'll stink pretty quickly. And that whole process of ongoing reinforcement, daily habitual training and learning is really key. Okay, 
What are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? For me, it's going to be, I think, content burnout is one of my one of my big things at the moment. What do you mean? So when I was in the office, I am way more creative than I am than I'm being at home, and that's because I'm around people, I'm seeing people, we're talking about we're talking about they've had a call to someone in the in the retail industry, and I've had a call to someone in the finance industry. I understand what they're doing. He understands what I'm doing. And we, we kind of build, we kind of, so we build information out from that. And that information can be translated across into socials at the moment are a big thing. I don't know how much of socials can convert into a, into an actual sale. I don't believe that much does, but it does definitely does bring, bring brand awareness. And just generally, so not having the not having the mind frame to to build out that content initially. So there's days where I'll, I'll think of 20 different things, and there's days where I'm completely gone and I need to um, I need to learn when to switch off. And that's that working from home piece. Unfortunately, I'm, I say unfortunately, and I um, some people will disagree again. Working from home is not for me, and it won't be for my company. I think there's a big difference between productivity and creativity. So companies will say productivity has gone through the roof, which I agree with. People can turn and people can essentially turn over and be logged on and start working. When you're at home, don't even need to brush your teeth, don't even get out of bed. Absolutely fine. So you can do that. So productivity, yes, is going to get higher. But the creativity, I just don't believe, it, even with some of the tools that we have, um, so the collaboration tools we have, I just don't think it will ever be the same as being in an office and having an environment where everyone's doing the same thing, and especially in sales. So as much as end of the month is a tainted, tainted thing or end of the year is a tainted, tainted thing of trying to bring everything in, it's also a great time because everyone's, um, everyone, there's, there's, a, there's an atmosphere that's been created and it's usually a fun one. Everyone's on the phone, everyone's busy, phones are buzzing and, and it creates an atmosphere. I just don't think that create, and that creativity and that buzz is just not available at home. They're probably, and that and a, and a daily reset is again probably my third pain point of this and i appreciate a lot of these are working from home related the daily reset is just end of the day i want to be able to um daily reset is just something so because you can always keep continually carrying on doing work throughout when you're working from home my um my laptop stands in the kitchen on my dining table <laughs> so, <laughs> a couple of things that you might want to explore are you diary blocking i am so i i block an hour so there's an hour on each side of my day um, I block out to, to, to do it. Um, I originally did the 25-minute um, the twenty-five minute focus blocks. Well, I'd focus for 25 minutes on, on a task, but uh, to be fair, that's just fizzled out over the last, <laughs> last few weeks. Okay. There are a couple of things that you can do. If you diary block, then what works really nicely is if you block each section of your day, start with your personal life. So put that into the diary and be ruthless and disciplined in ensuring that you make sure that you have that in place because all work and no play makes Rinku a boring bastard, okay? And also your family life will suffer badly if uh, you don't do that. Then put admin in, maybe 10 minutes a day. Just make sure it gets done. Do a little and often. Next thing. Make sure that you've got your high priority, high value activities built in. So things like coaching for a manager, really important. Build that in. Don't ever compromise and 
let that be sacrificed for the urgent and expedient. You're coaching on a regular basis uh, of your reps. If you do three to three and a half hours per month per rep, the average quota attainment is 105%. If you do less than three to three and a half hours per rep, the average quota attainment is 40 to 60%. So you have to make time for coaching because coaching is the single biggest lever you have uh, to generate um, uh, results. And it's key also that you are disciplined and rigorous in how you not only protect time, but make sure that there's a structure that, uh, and a routine, particularly if you're working from home. So three things that you can implement that you'll find very useful. Monday morning check-in. What are your top three goals for this week? And don't make it something like make three appointments per day because that's their job. Make it something like learn how to speak, engage with the executive assistant of a chief executive in an enterprise. Improve my getting past gatekeepers. Improve my storytelling. Okay, then ask them why they picked that so that you can understand the motivation. How will you measure that? What are the consequences of not achieving that goal or those goals? And how can I help? Don't make it a gotcha exercise. You, you know, your job as a manager is to hire the best people, get the best out of them, make sure they have the tools and resources they need to do their best work every day and help them clear roadblocks. And given that you are the idiot at the top, protect them from acts of idiocy from above. The next thing is on a daily basis, have a team stitch call. So what is today's most important call? What's the decision that you're hoping to get at the end of it? Can you share the agreement that you've already got in place with that prospect as to what the purpose of the call is and what the intended outcome is that you're working towards? And can you show me your pre-call plan? Incredibly powerful. And then bookend the end of the week with a Friday afternoon checkout. How did you perform against the three goals that you committed to on Monday? What were the specific hits and misses? What were the drivers of those hits and misses? What are you going to stop, start, continue, do more of, do less of? And how can you help? And in doing that, uh, it creates the routine and the structure for your team to know what's expected of them that you know what's expected of you. And every week, everybody is improving in three significant ways. And you're giving them the support in order to do that. How many people have you got on your team? So we're now growing. So we've just got a few more people on actually in the last few weeks. Uh, so, we're now, so we're now at eight. Okay, so that's 24 improvements per week. That's 96 improvements a month. Yeah, that's over a thousand ways your business will improve every year. Now, if you look back over your career, can you think of any business that you've been in where there were over a thousand documented, reinforced improvements in the sales team's behavior? This is a, this is a, it's kind of this revolutionizing revolutionizing the industry here. The key, Rinku, is do a little and often and do the right things. You focus on the right behavior because it's the only thing you can control. You can't control the result. You don't control the number. You control the behavior that gets you there. And if you focus as a manager on helping your salespeople develop great behaviors and turn those into habits and have the discipline to instill them, 
then chances are you will see massive growth. And what's interesting is that people who will be then poached and headhunted, but they won't want to leave because they know that wherever they go, they're not going to get that level of support. And the number one reason why uh, salespeople leave is they leave their boss because the boss doesn't appreciate them. Over 80%. I've recruited for 35 years now and 10 years headhunting. And every single time, well, 80% of the time, it was because they didn't feel appreciated by their boss or the company. And they normally left their manager. They didn't leave the job. They didn't leave the company. So that's really key. Tell me, how can people get hold of you? So for me, LinkedIn is definitely my first, has been my first port of call for, um, for social engagement. So shrinky banger. Uh, and if you follow our page, Excellion over on LinkedIn, we're always posting content relevant rather than posting about vendors. And uh, yeah, so feel free to reach out. And if you want to chat around what we're doing, yeah, feel free to reach out and understand the kind of our business structure. I think it's something that is going to change. It's definitely different from what, what the norm is. Are you hiring at the moment? We are hiring and we are planning to grow. There's a big, We're doing a big hire before the end of December, so we are going to be accelerating faster. So, if, yeah, if there's anyone that's out there who's hungry and anyone that's out there wants to learn and develop themselves way more than they ever have, feel free to reach out. Excellent. Rinku Banger, thank you very much. This has been really insightful, and thank you for your candor. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you for having me this morning. Pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off from the Inquisitor podcast once again. If you've enjoyed the conversation, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. If you'd like to get hold of me or uh, Rinku, then please email me at marcuskauke at me.com or m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sandler.com. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who'd be a good guest, then please email me and or put us together on LinkedIn and I'll do my best to try and get them on as a guest. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.